Maybe today is your first time at pursuit. Let me reassure you, it is not normally like this. <laughs> A lot of churches, they cancel the last Sunday of the year because they want to give their staff and volunteers a break. <laughs> Giving staff a break is called a vacation, and we do offer vacation time as part of our compensation package here at Pursuit. But with that being said, for over 1,900 years, the church has gathered on Sunday morning to celebrate the resurrection because Sunday was the day Christ rose from the grave. And after everything that we went through three years ago with the government trying to shut us down, let me say it loud and clear, we ain't canceling church. <laughs> But lo and behold, I thought to myself, what would church be like if people simply checked out, didn't show up, didn't sign up to serve, didn't respond to that planning center request, didn't get here early to make sure the stage was clean or the instruments were being played. Some of you have never even seen this ancient Egyptian technology we have on stage that's called an overhead projector. I thought to myself, why not hold a service on Sunday and demonstrate how pursuit would feel without staff or volunteers? So welcome to Chaos Sunday, a pursuit service unlike no other. I am convinced that most people never quite realize the amount of volunteer hours it takes to host a Sunday service here at Pursuit. We got volunteers in the parking lot. Volunteers in the kids' classrooms, volunteers on the stage, volunteers in the sound booth, the lobby, the green room, the nursery. We got volunteers running the cameras, the lights, the screens, you name it. If you see it in this church, it likely requires a volunteer to run it. <laughs> volunteers built the classrooms your kids are in today. Now don't look too closely at that wall because the volunteer who built that one only had one good eye, so it's a little crooked. <laughs> Volunteers built the bathrooms that you'll sit your buns in today. We trench those by hand. Volunteers cut through the cement foundation to fix the broken hot water pipes that were under this building because for the first two years of being in this JCPenney we had no hot water. <laughs> we cut through to cement only to realize that this building in the 1960s was built over existing road. So after cutting through six inches of concrete we had to jackhammer through another four inches of asphalt just so that we could reach the soil to lay new pipes. And volunteers clean these floors every Saturday night for 18 months straight until we could afford to get them sealed and polished looking like they are today. This week in Kirkland, we got volunteers painting that building. We've got volunteers hanging those LED screens. The team told me yesterday that they had volunteers in there till 4 a.m. last night, making sure that building will be ready for the public. 
in a little less than seven days. See, here's my point. If we're not careful, sometimes church can feel like a football game. 70,000 folks in the stands screaming at 22 guys who are on the field. 70,000 folks watching a handful of people working. And everyone has an idea on how to do it better. Come on, Russell Wilson. Just get out of the pocket. (laughs) Just throw the ball. How many times are you going to get sacked by the same person on this Sunday? How could you not see that receiver? He's right in front of you. Why would you throw it? Why wouldn't you run it? Why did you hand it off? Why won't you just operate in accordance with my observations? Uh, Come on, Russell. Just lead better. Just preach better. Just manage better. Stop making mistakes. Why would you hire them? How could you transition them? How did you forget to call that person back? When are you going to catch up on your email? Never. (laughs) You should have thrown it. You should have passed it. You should have handled that conversation better. Why can't you be like our last quarterback? Why won't you just operate in accordance with my observations? (laughs) See, Jesus says in Luke 17, the kingdom of God does not come with observation, but instead, the kingdom of God is within you. Meaning this, the kingdom of God does not appear to those who are waiting with observant eyes. Instead, the kingdom of God appears to those who operate with participating hands. Because when I serve, not if I serve. Because when I get involved, not if I get involved. Because when I contribute, not if I contribute. That which lives within me becomes made manifest around me. (laughs) Watch what Jesus says. The kingdom of God is like dough that is kneaded. The kingdom of God is like seed that is planted. The kingdom of God is like a tower that is built, a net that is cast, or a field that is purchased. Watch the pattern. The kingdom of God is not observed in a laboratory or watched in an auditorium or studied in a classroom. The kingdom of God is experienced only by virtue of my involvement. Meaning this. I have an invitation to participate, not in a stagnant kingdom, not in a boring kingdom, not in a powerless kingdom, but instead in an ever advancing kingdom. And that kingdom becomes visible in and through my life. Watch by the laying on of my hands. When I put my hands to work, when I direct my hands to give, when I lift my hands to praise, when my participation becomes paramount, the kingdom becomes prominent. You have a lot of opinions about raising kids, and then you have some. You have a lot of opinions about how a marriage should operate, and then you have one. You have a lot of opinions about how a church should function. And then you lead one. The Pharisees are yelling at Jesus. 
Where's this kingdom you keep speaking of? And Jesus says, oh, you can't see it until you receive it. And you can't receive it until you first believe it. For how can you inherit a kingdom if you also reject its king? And what will it look like if you accept this king and enter into his kingdom? Jesus says, you'll sell what you have. You'll carry your cross. You'll reject the world. You'll die to yourself. You'll leave the stands. You'll put on your helmet and your pads. And you'll get involved in the game. Because opinions are easy. But they don't change history. We didn't plant a church so that we could find a mission. We found a mission worth dying for. So we planted a church worth fighting for. And we dared this God to show up in power. There's only so many pictures of the beach that you can stare at before you long to feel the sand underneath your feet. There's only so many stories of adventure that you can hear about before you desire to leave the safety of home to embark on a journey of your own. A lot of people have a lot of opinions about a lot of quarterbacks running around on the field, but I'm inviting you to get involved in the game. Because it's the fourth quarter in the Pacific Northwest and time is running out. But the church has the ball and we are on offense. Oh, I appreciate the cheers from the seats. But who will stand with me to wage war on the field? Here's what's crazy. Half the worship team is missing. The lights ain't working. The screens don't have the cool graphics they usually have. The room is messy. The chairs ain't straight. The stage is chaos. I'm preaching from a music stand that survived World War I. <laughs> and yet still, the Spirit of God is here in power this morning. <laughs> if you only hear one thing today, hear this. My message is not, you better volunteer else God won't show up. My message is this, when you volunteer, you get the best seat in the house to see a God who always shows up. <laughs> I, I appreciate the Apostle Paul. And his usage of marriage as an analogy for the body of Christ. Because being part of a church, volunteering on a serve team, serving in any capacity, is a lot like being married. And by that I mean this. Maria and I got engaged when she was a senior in high school. We got married the summer she graduated. Prior to getting engaged, we dated for a grand total of four months. The entire process was so fast that by the time we was walking down the aisle, we truly hadn't even experienced our first fight. Maria was the first serious girlfriend I ever had. I was the first boyfriend she ever had. We were both a little naive, understandably so. And when thinking about our marriage, we made this mistake. In our minds, we took the best date that we had ever been on. 
and we thought to ourselves, see how awesome this was? Now imagine the next 60 years of having this same experience over and over again. <laughs> Fast forward to the honeymoon. We're on the beach in Honolulu, yelling at each other. Why are you the way you are? <laughs> now watch, looking back over the last 14 years of our marital bliss, we have had our fair share of conflict. But we've got grace for the conflict because we have skin in the game. And the longer we are together, the more grace we have. Because the labor of our lives, watch, has created the bond for our covenant. We got kids together. We got a house together. We got debt together. We have a church together. We've got friends together. We've got grace for the conflict because we have skin in the game. I told Maria, you better not die before me. Because I can't stand the thought of getting remarried and having to do all that fighting again, but this time with someone new. <laughs> and just like in marriage, the church that builds together sticks together. The church that volunteers together stays together. The church that gives together remains together. Well, pastor, I just don't know how I feel about all this. Because the church should be a place of no more pain, no more sorrow, no more conflict, tears, labor, or hardship. No, that's heaven, sweetie. Don't confuse the two. Heaven is where we are headed, but the church is what we have now. And that church is imperfect. It is impatient. It is still growing. It is still learning. It is still fighting. It is still stretching. It is still developing. But we got grace for the conflict because we've got skin in the game. Now watch what Jesus says in John 16. He says, a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. <laughs> watch, watch. You want something of significance to be birthed through your life? You want to help this church birth something generational in this region? There's a reason they call it labor pains. Because when the time comes to push, you find yourself willing to embrace that which is painful because you know the joy of that which is coming. It's labor, which means work, and it's pain, which means ouch. I'd, I'd almost forgotten, Lighty. <laughs> but this time last year, we, we launched a campus in Seattle. And to be honest, I was a little upset at the Lord this week because he tricked me. Because I recognized something. While we were celebrating the baptisms in Seattle, 
while we were thanking God for miracles and salvations in Seattle, while young people were getting filled with the Holy Spirit and coming out of addiction and drugs and alcohol in Seattle, somewhere along the way, over the last 12 months, God used the joy of what has been born at that campus to cause me to forget the labor pain it took for it to come to pass. The pain that many of you are not privy to in this room because we don't always share those types of things in this moment. But if you would humor me for but a minute, let me invite you in to the pain of what that campus caused. The pain of threatening letters in the mail. The pain of legal fees, police reports, ultimatums from strangers warning me about the death of my family or staff if we dared to open a church in Seattle. How about our names getting drugged through the mud, Lighty? Because a certain denomination was upset that we bought the building instead of them. (laughs) How about when they leaked my cell phone number to their friends so they could call me round the clock for 22 days straight to attempt and bully me out of that city? How about security having to follow me home because of the crazy voicemails we got at the church? How about that campus getting vandalized every other week during the first few months? How about when the basement of that campus flooded two nights before our grand opening? A woman giving birth to a child has pain. But when her baby is born, she forgets because of joy. (laughs) What we want is an epidural to block our discomfort. What Christ wants is a bride who will endure her pain. Why? Because pain is proof that you're alive. And nothing of consequence is ever birthed in the spirit without at least a little inconvenience to our flesh. And I simply refuse at this moment in my life to give God something that has cost me nothing. And and that brings us all the way to to 1 Chronicles, a book written by a man named Ezra. He was a scribe and a historian who wrote down the story of Israel so that future generations could learn from both their mistakes and their successes. And in 1 Chronicles 21, Ezra records a story about King David that I believe speaks to the theme of today's service. And in 1 Chronicles 21 and in verse 1, that story begins. So Satan rose up against Israel, and he incited David to take a census of Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, Take a census of all the people, from Beersheba in the south to Dan in the north, and bring me a report so that I may know how many there are. And God was very displeased with the census, and he punished Israel for it. Now, you you might be asking yourself today, why, why on earth would God be so upset that David conducted a census of the people of Israel? Out of all the mistakes that David made, why was counting the people all that serious? And Dr. Guzik makes this observation. In ancient cultures, a man only had the right to count or number that which belonged to him. 
When David counted the people of Israel, he was saying to the Lord, These are my people, not yours. They are my providers, not you. And their vast number speaks to my prominence, not your prominence. See, David made the mistake of forgetting who put him in office in the first place. The success of Israel wasn't a tribute to the brilliance of David. It was a tribute to the brilliance of David's God. David's ascension to the throne may have started in the spirit, but somewhere along the line, it continued on in the flesh. And there is nothing, hear me, nothing, God won't kill faster than pride that takes credit for that which God has built. See, God routinely makes us look better than we actually are by allowing us to share in the glory of the great things that He has done. This church is a great example of that. My family is a great example of that. Our lives are a great example of that. Your business is a great example of that. God has not given us what we deserve. He has given us what He deserves. And watch what the Scriptures say. It was Satan who rose up against Israel to incite David. I want you to notice this. The most common attack of the enemy in your life will be a subtle lie that tries to convince you to place your trust in a lesser truth. Hear me, hear me. Israel was impressive. David did have a string of military victories. The borders of their land were expanding. The kingdom was being enriched. It's not that David didn't have anything to be proud of. But that should have been his first warning. The enemy tries to attach himself to the fruit of your lowest hanging victory. In an attempt to cause pride. Which will ultimately lead to your downfall. David was successful, but that was a lesser truth. David was talented, but that was a lesser truth. David was very charismatic, but that was a lesser truth. The reality is this. David would still be working for his dad, shearing sheep in the valley, writing weird songs on his harp. If it wasn't for a God who called him out, a prophet who anointed him with oil, and a giant who ticked him off. We can't ever forget the places from whence we have come. Because it's the story of God's unbroken faithfulness to a people who have not deserved it. (laughs) In verse 14, the story continues. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell dead. And God sent an angel to destroy Jerusalem. But just as that angel was prepping to destroy it, the Lord saw it and relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was destroying the people, Enough! Withdraw your hand! And at that moment, the angel of the Lord found himself standing at the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. See, sometimes we are shocked when we see things in Scripture Because it seems to disagree with our modern notion of morality. Let me help you today. You are not more ethical than God. You are not more gracious than God. You are not more forgiving than God. You are not more kind than God. And God does not need our permission to judge the nations of the earth. (laughs) Now, with that being said, when the Bible says God sent a plague, that Hebrew word most commonly translates to the English word allowed. 
Meaning when David refused to agree with and follow that which God had commanded, it's almost as if God but for a moment lifted his hand of protection off of Israel and temporarily allowed the enemy to wreak havoc. Hear me. God did not randomly lose control and now Satan is running the show. God is simply demonstrating to David what it's like when we think we are in control and pretend that we no longer need him. But the Bible says something interesting. When the Lord saw that the angel was about to destroy Jerusalem, all God had to say was enough. Because even in judgment, he remembers mercy. And that moment, that moment would be the setup for an event that would have eternal ramifications. Notice what the scriptures say. When the angel was restrained, prevented from destroying Jerusalem, he found himself standing at the threshing floor of a man named Ornan. Now in ancient cultures, when wheat was ready to be harvested, it would be plucked by the farmer and then brought to a place called the threshing floor. The threshing floor was an outdoor circular stone floor where the stalks of wheat would be spread out on the ground and the oxen would trample over it. And while the oxen walked, it would separate the grain from the husk. Then the angel of the Lord ordered Gad to tell David to go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. David said to Ornan, now let me have this side of your threshing floor so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. Sell it to me at full price. Ornan responds, no, just take it, my Lord, the king. Use it as you wish. I'll give you the oxes. I'll give you the threshing boards. I'll give you the wood. I'll give you the wheat for the grain offering. I will give it all to you. But King David said to Ornan, no, no. I insist on paying full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours or sacrifice a burnt offering that has cost me nothing. <laughs> Poor Ornan. Think about all that he has just witnessed. An angel is on their way to destroy Jerusalem. All of a sudden, a voice thunders from heaven. Enough! The angel reverses course and decides to park his wings right next to Ornan's wheat factory. Not a few moments later, the king over all of Israel shows up and says, Listen, Ornan, you want this plague to stop? Sell me this threshing floor. Ornan is so shook. He says, take it for free. I'll give you the land. I'll give you the oxen. I'll give you the wood, the wheat, whatever you need. Just let me go home in one piece. <laughs> and here is where this gets interesting. David says, oh, Ornan, I, I know I, I could get this land for free. I know I can make Ornan offer this sacrifice on my behalf. I, I know I shouldn't have to build my own altar or stack my own chair. I work all week. I just want to relax on Sundays. 
Not only do I volunteer here, but now they ask me for my money. I know I've got every good excuse in the book to just be an ordinary observer of somebody else's work. But I refuse to offer God a sacrifice that has cost me nothing. So David paid Ornan 600 pieces of gold for the site. What you may not know is that the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite, was on a place called Mount Moriah. The same mountain that 800 years prior Abraham would offer Isaac as a sacrifice. The same mountain that 40 years later, David's son Solomon would build the temple. The same mountain range that a thousand years later, Christ would be crucified on. It cost Abraham something. It cost David something. It cost Solomon something. It cost Christ something. But the price that was paid on that threshing floor is still impacting people today. Friend, being part of this church, it'll cost you something. I'd be lying if I said it wouldn't. But I guess nine years later, I still operate with the belief that God never allows a sacrifice to go to waste. So I'll buy the field and I'll build him an altar because I think Jerusalem is worth saving. Kirkland is worth reaching. And this church is worth building. I'm sure each and every one of you in this room have had a, a similar experience, but I was thinking this week back to my days at, at Shoreline Community College, sitting in a class that I only received a passing grade in because of the supernatural intervention of the Lord. And as that quarter of community college drew to a close, the teacher announced before the end of class that instead of having a final at the end of this course, there would be a, a group project. And we were instructed to link up with three other people in the classroom and form a cohort for we would be presenting our group project the following week. All of a sudden, my eyes like a radar are scanning the room. Who's the smartest looking person here? I'm trying to find that person who actually stayed awake during the lecture, actually took the notes, actually knows what they're talking about, actually studied and prepared, actually read the textbook, actually passed a test or two. My eyes are scanning to and fro throughout the entire classroom just looking for somebody I could attach myself to. And I found them. And all of a sudden, I showed up as their best friend. Hi, I'm Russ. What's your name? So glad to meet you. Would you like to link up with me the privilege of working alongside me for this group project? They said, oh, oh, sure. And pretty soon, one or two others joined us and we had our group. 
And I knew in that very moment that I just aced my final without having to lift a finger. And this person was up all night. They were studying late and they had created the charts and the fold-out sheets and the PowerPoint presentation. And they studied it and they went to the lab and they mixed together all the ingredients and they had everything ready to go. All I had to do was show up for class and pretend like I was awake. And I could do that very well. So on the day of that final, I showed up. I stood there like an idiot with my mouth silent in front of the class while my new best friend in the world had worked all week and gave the best presentation in the room and I was so proud to see my final grade at the end of that course 4.0 on your group project I was thinking about that in, in the context of this sermon that I'm sharing with you today it's easy in a church that has momentum to show up and ride the wake of somebody else's sacrifice to get a passing grade on your spirituality. And my heart for us today is to recognize that God never opens a new door into a new season without the requirement to make new sacrifice. See, here's the reality. We are not building a church in the Northwest. We are building an altar and altars are not significant without sacrifice. <laughs> and to the best of my ability, I'm trying to demonstrate what a chaotic Sunday would look like. And it's still awesome and it's still fun and all of our friends are still here. But I am aware of the human temptation to mail it in, to show up and ride somebody else's momentum, to feel like I'm getting a 4.0 even though I haven't invested, I haven't served, I haven't tied, I haven't prayed. I just want the credit for showing up. And what if we dared ourselves to build a community where we sacrificed equally because we had such a big view of this God and the mission that lays in front of us that it was not okay in the innermost part of who we are to allow somebody else to do the spiritual work on our behalf. I will not give God something that has cost me nothing. Now, I want to challenge you for the days that are ahead, for all of the new things that God will do in, in 2024. There, there's a part of me that is so over-the-top excited for January 7th. There's another part of me that is equally as terrified as I've ever been. But I'm confident that if God showed up in Snohomish, He'll show up in Kirkland. I'm confident that if the wind of His Spirit filled Seattle, it'll fill the east side as well. I'm just confident that if the God who didn't fail us before won't fail us now, then there is simply no region too difficult for this church to reach. But I am even more convinced than I've ever been that in this moment, new seasons require new sacrifice. And I would fail as a pastor to allow the momentum of what's happening here on Sunday to go unchallenged in your life today. Will you offer God a sacrifice that has cost you something? Come on, would you stand with me as we, we close today?
Not enough money in the world to hire every staff person that we need. <laughs> but I know this, if we'll each do our part, that God, through the humble sacrifice of our lives, will build something for the next generation. I'm convinced that this great task is still well worth it. Let me pray for you today. Father, I thank you not for my people, but for your people. No, we haven't counted them to our credit. You have counted them for your credit. God, I pray that as we close out 2023 and walk with bold anticipation into 2024, that the one who walks beside us, that spirit which lives inside of us, that God who is the rod and the staff who comfort us, lead us in green pastures and beside still waters, that one who causes our cup to overflow, sits us at a table in front of our enemies, who says surely goodness and mercy will follow you even all the days of your life, that we would continue to honor you with everything that we have. And so God, we bring to you the humble sacrifice of our time, of our talent and of our treasure. And God, may the church we lead never become bigger than the church that is in our heart. And God, may we live lives that are still close to the altar, knowing that it is sacrifice that draws your fire, that it's sacrifice that draws your presence and your smoke. And God, may we consider for the joy that was set before us, that we could despise the shame of the world around us, keeping our eyes locked on the author and the finisher of our faith and staying faithful to the high call of God, which has been placed on us like a mantle for such a time as this. May 2024 be the year where we no longer live vicariously through the sacrifice of a pastor on stage or a prayer worker at the altar, but we lay our lives down as living sacrifices unto this God that we serve. God, we hold nothing back from you. You were there at our beginning. You will be there at our end. From dust we were made and from dust we will go, but to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. God, we trust you with our lives today this was your dream before it was ours this was your church before it was ours this was your region before it was ours and so God today we offer you the sacrifice of our praise and the sacrifice of a life poured out in offering to you and we say God do what you will and do what you must but it is not by our own might nor by our own power it is by your spirit alone And may the sacrifice of the people in this room pave the way for the next generation to experience the transformative power of your presence. And may there be a sustaining grace that causes us to forget the pain of that which we have walked through in light of the joy that we are coming into. God, by your spirit, do your best work in us. We give you the praise, the glory, and the honor. In Jesus' name, all God's people said amen. Hey, let me give you a specific set of instructions that's going to be very important for today and for next week. If you're here today and you're like, I'm a Snohomish person, please come to Snohomish on Sunday. And then what we're going to encourage you to do is if you want to be at the grand opening, do that. 
I'm going to be here in Snohomish, and I'm going to be at the grand opening through the power of the automobile. <laughs> we'll go into second service here on time. It'll give you about 35 minutes to get down to Kirkland. Join us for both and, not either or. It's going to be an incredible day in the presence of God. Number two is this. On your way out of service today, before you leave, please help me by stacking your chair because I don't want fourth service to ride in on the sacrifice of third service. <laughs> Stack your chair so they get the full experience. If you need prayer before you leave, come to the altar. Want to add our faith to yours to see God do a miracle in your life. If not, God bless. Stack a chair. We'll see you next Sunday. Grand opening. God bless.